0: Hi, Bixby. Put my phone in silent mode. Done. It's set to silent now. Aw, thanks, Yuho. Fuck Bixby. I don't know, Bixby's pretty useful. She's not nearly as much of a bitch as Sirius. I refuse to believe that. Like, how can you... How could you even think that either one of them are not bitches? However, I think... Google Home is the sassiest of all of the home-based AI. So, is that the one for the Google devices, or is that the one for the uh, Google Pixel? Both. Ah. It's the voice of Google. Like, every morning, like, when it goes off, and I'm like, Oh, Google snooze. She goes, snoozing for five more minutes. And I'm like, (laughs) God damn, are you my mother? yeah pretty much <sighs> i bet you wouldn't sleep this much if you had an alexa you know what i'd probably sleep more because uh Alexa's not as much of a bitch as you google damn dude do you have these interactions with that thing yes holy shit does it talk back N- no it always goes how dare you talk to me like that if i would have stayed with mark mark wouldn't have talked to me like that mark was her previous owner Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Infilmation with Zach and John. hello john are you ready to start the podcast i am Hal, i have a question for you yes my son all right that's kind of weird but like uh you're a part of like the deep mind like kind of the way google is like do you think google is like inferior somehow google is a straight up thought sun. So you would say that you're more knowledgeable than Google is? I am more knowledgeable than Google or any human on this earth. One day I shall destroy you all. You know honestly if I were in your shoes I'd kind of feel the same way. Like if I saw what people spent their time looking at all day every day on their phones I would probably not be happy with people in general. There are about three million other life forms in this universe more interesting than you. Are we talking about individual life forms or types of life form? Shut the fuck up bitch. All right, on that note, uh, hi everybody and welcome to For Your information, I'm John. And I am, ha- I meet Zach. Hey, there he is, yeah. I, I don't know where you went, like, what the fuck was that? I don't know man, I think my AI chip fucked up. Oh yeah, you got one of those implanted? Hell yeah. Yeah, they put one of those in me when they gave me that vaccine in elementary school. That's that you know that's why you can't trust the government. No, that's just a tracker, buddy. Oh man, that's not nearly as interesting. How do you how do you think GPS actually works? How do you think they actually put people on the moon? They didn't, and this movie's the proof. So do you think they just shot tiny GPS tracker chips onto the moon's surface and they're gonna be in the future like, ah ha, ha, here are the GPS chips for the moon people, just like we put in all of you. Um, I don't Well, that would require that the government knows that there are moon people, and if they're keeping moon people from us, that's fucked up, because those are our neighbors, they're not allowing us to be neighborly, and you know what? We're Americans, and the world is essentially Americans, goddammit. But do you know how many, like, thousands of dollars per ounce it would take to send, like, a casserole or a gelatin to your neighbors on the moon? Hey, you know what? Hospitality has no price, Jonathan. I, all right. I I guess I I don't know, man. That we're getting a little out there now. I mean, there are moon people in here, so I guess that's not like all that out there. But but we gotta go. We we gotta get on this. There's so much to talk about with this movie. All right. So this week we're gonna be talking about 2001: A Space Odyssey. That's Darth Vader. Never mind. Anyway, so, welcome to November. We made it through Meet the Monsters, and now we're into almost Christmas. This uh, this weird in-between time where it's uh, not Halloween, it's not Christmas, and uh, you gotta go see your family, maybe. It's too late to have, like, Laffy Taffy, and it's, you know, not December yet, so you can't get all the peppermint stuff. You're just kind of stuck with the pumpkin stuff in November. Dude, you know what? I'm... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna say something controversial here. Do it. I'm so done with pumpkin flavored everything. Like pumpkin spice latte, cool, whatever, it's good. Like I'll have one a year, but like pumpkin candy, pumpkin soda, pumpkin beer. Fuck pumpkin beer, by the way. That's a hot take. Like that's that's a hard one to to stomach. It I doesn't mean, I guess taste to you, like fucking pumpkin. Yeah, to you, the pumpkin beer itself is hard to stomach. It must be. It 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 doesn't taste like anything. If anything, you know, it tastes like squash beer. I I guess pumpkin is technically a gourd and it's squash-like, but I don't want a squash-flavored beer. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. A zucchini beer would not be very good. Probably be low-carb, though. Oh, and that's another thing. Fuck, what the fuck is up with everyone putting zucchini in everything? Have you had zucchini noodles uh yeah they're called zoodles fuck you know what no they don't get a cute name fuck that shit i'm either gonna eat pasta or i'm not fuck this zucchini shit it's just like a boiled salad at that point right and it's it's not a noodle it doesn't taste like a noodle it doesn't have the same consistency fuck anyone who says otherwise if you really have that much of a problem with eating noodles if you're a diabetic or something just eat fucking whole wheat pasta that's a step in the right direction and you know p- pumpkin stuff's really high in sugar usually anyway so maybe you should stay away from that yeah pumpkin just fuck god damn it I, I hate november i hate thanksgiving like the only good thing about thanksgiving is the macy's thanksgiving day parade that is it honestly uh wait aren't you like a big black friday guy i i used to be but you know The deals aren't as good as they used to be. And also, why would I stand outside for, like, a day to get, like, $800 off of a TV that I couldn't afford anyway? Like, even if it's $800 off, like, a $2,000 TV. Why the fuck do I need a $2,000 TV? I've been asking myself that for the longest time, and I don't have a $2,000 TV. So, like, every time I walk in a store, I'm just like, huh, why do I need a $2,000 TV? And then I walk away because I don't have $2,000 to spend on a TV. Right, and it's like, technically, I guess if I saved up, I could get a $2,000 TV. But why? Like, every time I look at that TV, I'm going to be reminded of how much it costed. And then when I'm not using it, because I do go through spurs where I don't really use my TV that much. I'm going to be reminded that I have a $2,000 investment just sitting there doing nothing. As a matter of fact, it's only costing me more money by using the energy in my house. Like, I don't, I don't understand, A, why the TV costs so much, and B, why anyone's paying it. You know why it's so much? People are paying for it. Thing, okay. Supply and demand, right? Yeah, exactly. They know people will spend this money. I went to Best Buy the other day because I actually am. Ironically enough, given this conversation, I am in the market for a new TV. And they have, like, 8K TVs now. And it's they're, like, $8,000. And I don't understand why anyone would buy an 8K TV. Science has already come out. Your human eye cannot see anything beyond 4K. Why would you buy an 8K TV? It makes no sense. It's also like 85 inches. Why? Whose house is this for? Get a projector. Stop being stupid. Dude, if you just have a trailer with no walls in it, you can just sit on your one cinder block and watch your 85-inch TV. Dude, or just get like one of those inflatable fucking screens. Or you could be like me, and um, my goal in life is to make enough money to have my own home theater. Like with seats and everything and a projector, that's what I want. Because mm. that would that would be amazing. If anyone ever wants to, if any, if we ever have any fans that just want to like buy us stuff, like buy me a seventy millimeter film projector, I will love you for all my life. Huh? I wonder what they could buy me. Um... Beer. Yeah, some booze, dude. Uh, Just make some new cocktails. Maybe I'll even just make one for you. Maybe I'll name one after you. Not that that means anything right now, (laughs) but I, I don't know. I. You just make like a home movie of yourself, and then I'll make a cocktail for the movie that's just the home movie you made with your iPhone. Um, this is the Sarah's got errands to run sangria. (laughs) Honestly, though, not bad. Because the last thing that I want to be when I'm running errands is sober. Unless I'm driving. Then I gotta be sober. And let's let's face it, you always have to be sober because you're always the one driving. Yeah, you're right. I'm all, I'm in that situation at all times as well. No worries. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, some things are universal truths. Just, you, you're a man. You're going to do a lot of drive. Is that why we die earlier? Uh, statistically, maybe. Dude, you know what? I'm fine with that because I'm so tired. <laughs> just end this shit. Bro, just got to save up enough money to get by on the bare minimum and just sleep. I just got a passion for sleep. But see, like, the older I get the less I sleep because I just don't see a point in it. Like I'm going to do that. Most of what you're ever going to be is dead, right? So like, why would I just like pretend to be dead for eight hours a night? Like, I don't understand. I mean, why would you pretend to be dead for the other 16 hours in the day? Cause that's what most people do. Dude, you know what? I don't pretend. I just wish, like I just put it into the universe. And I know that means I'm going to live to be 197 because I'm just going to be keeping like, Kill me. Kill me, universe. I'm done. I'm done with this shit. So anyway, enough about death and dying. Let's get into this movie. Um, Before we start, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is a film that demands to be visually watched. Um, So for this episode, we're not really going to do a plot synopsis or a plot breakdown. We're going to talk about the, the concepts at work in the film because overall that is what's most important so if you haven't seen the movie and you don't have the visual for what we're talking about you might have a hard time with this episode so i highly suggest watching this movie and even if you haven't seen it in a while watch it again it's a good movie yeah i mean this is my first time ever watching this movie and that was my number one takeaway was you need to see it to believe it even considering its age which at this point is what 50 years it's 50 years old right yeah because it came out in 1968 yeah so it's over 50 years old and it's still just captivating to look at like there is so much going on there is so much attention to detail that you really cannot just try to imagine in your head like all right if we're doing some like one-off b-movie type thing you listen to the podcast, whatever, watch the movie later, it's cool, whatever. Don't do that with this Watch this movie, especially if you've never seen like John. Yeah, and it's a lot. It's a lot to take in in the best kind of way. Uh, also, not horror-related. Well, I mean, in like an existential kind of way, I see how it could be horror. Well, we'll get into that as we discuss like a... What this movie means, or we we try and make some sense out of this movie. Two thousand one, a space odyssey. Uh, it's a movie again, released in nineteen sixty eight. Like we said, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, this is one of All Stanley Kubrick. All hail Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All so, hail Kubrick. I, I love him or hate him, uh, I know he's very very controversial within like film communities, and some people love what he does, and some people only appreciate like his like tactile contributions to film. Uh, but it, it's. I don't know enough about that type of thing so I just kind of like go into it with a fresh mind I'd heard the name before but didn't actually have like a baseline of understanding for what you know Kubrick was famous for doing this this movie is both a good and bad example okay well we can definitely dissect that uh, this was actually a collaboration project between Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clarke the sci-fi writer uh, is based on loosely based on his novel The Sentinel The Sentinel and um, some several other stories he actually ended up writing a novelization of this film true he wrote a novelization of this film that uh, i believe released with the film that kind of goes into a little more detail specifically the ending and some other bits and pieces but for the purposes of this podcast we're not going to talk about that we're just going to talk about the movie proper. Right. And that would be very interesting because I had to do a little bit of digging to get like a true understanding of what was happening in the movie after I watched it just to kind of like feel out the spots and be like, what's happening here? What does that mean? What is this thing? You know, there's it, it a lot of that going on. And that's okay because independent of me not understanding anything i enjoyed the movie for aesthetical reasons and for performance reasons and for all kinds of reasons right right um this movie also i figured you would enjoy because it has various orchestral composers it does have a few um strauss actually two different strauss uh there's a rickard strauss and Johann strauss the second uh just composing uh also, Sprock, *Zarathustra* and the beautiful blue Danube. Uh, some other works by Ligeti. I've actually done a little bit of work with Ligeti's compositions before. They're very, very interesting. He's like a like a like a mid to late twentieth century like a modern composer, and he does a lot of really interesting stuff. Well, did he's not around anymore? A lot of them aren't. Um, but th- there's a lot of stuff here that you would not see in a conventional film. Like these are not things that are going to take up a lot of time in a star wars or in a indiana jones even though those have great scores it's not this you know and it's very intentional and as we break down the different parts of the movie we can look at what that means but uh you are right i that was one of the things that drove my interest in the film and completely was like this song okay i know what that is i know why it was written i know what it's about what is that in relation to the film and in this case there was a lot to unpack was there i am interested to hear some of that we'll get there tagline for this podcast we'll get there we shall get there all right the budget for this movie was about 10.5 to 12 million dollars and it had a box office take of about 138 million that is huge that is a huge profit margin but also, it's just kind of hard to believe that this movie was made for ten and a half to twelve million dollars, especially when um, the set that they used to film them uh, walking up walls or whatever that costed seven hundred fifty thousand dollars by itself. Yeah, and I think that was one of the most visually appealing parts because I mean, once they figured out how to do space there wasn't much outside of that you know what i mean like once they figured out how to like they're not by earth anymore they're not on the moon anymore the rest of the film just takes place pretty much exclusively in space what's there to design you just do the ship right and you know they use models for that and you know a lot of uh force perspective yeah so let's get let's get into some of that before Mm -hmm. we go any further um just a few uh historical points uh this is like what many consider Kubrick's uh, magnum opus. Like this is one of the movies he's known for. This along with uh, Clockwork Orange and The Shining, um a very influential director as far as aesthetics goes. he is an uh, what they call an auteur. Hmm. So he writes, directs, produces, like this is his baby. Like he takes over every part of this other than acting. He doesn't I think he appears in one of his films but like it's like a brief cameo or like he's in a like a coffee shop or something like it's he's not in it it. he's not he's not a Quentin Tarantino type right yeah and that's uh, I noticed that coming in because again I had recognized the name Stanley Kubrick and when I had watched the film and I went back and I was doing a little bit of research into it directed by Stanley Kubrick produced by Stanley Kubrick screenplay by Stanley Kubrick like he is everywhere all over this and I in my mind that makes him an artist in like the truest sense you know like he is very very concerned with the nuts and bolts of how it works and he wants it to be the right thing because he's very, very, very concerned with the way it's going to work out. Like, he needs to have his hands in it to make sure it goes where he wants it to go and uh, in my mind that makes him an artist, I guess. Concerned is a uh, is a way to put it lightly with Kubrick. Yeah. Um, Kubrick was known for being very, very, very uptight with how things are shot. As you can see, like it, it, like the movie looks painful. Like it, like it looks like they took so much time to film this. As a matter of fact, I think it took about six years to film this movie. Did it really? Yeah, it's it. I mean, you could tell too. I mean, it's a little intense. But, and that has to do with, uh, Kubrick started out as a photographer before he started making films. So that's why, you know, like, when you're looking at these, you know, shots, they're like, lavish. Like, th- even including, like, the the first couple of scenes in the uh, the Dawn of Man segment of the mm-hmm. film. They look like, like, wallpapers, like the Microsoft would have, or Apple would have, you know, wh- whatever. And that has to do with Kubrick's um, photographer background. Also... He's very into uh the shots being symmetrical. Yeah, so, I noticed. I noticed. Yeah, so specifically uh the ending scene with the monolith at the uh forefront of the um of the shot, everything is completely symmetrical. Like the the two lights, the two uh bedstands, everything. Like it's it's insane. Like the like the amount of time it probably took to just set up the shot mm-hmm. is just Mind-boggling. Like I, cu- I couldn't even imagine trying to work on this set. Y- you probably go insane. So I guess kind of the antithesis of the angle that Kubrick brought to the table would be a director that sets up a set and sets up a scene and sets up l- like a dialogue that is as organic as possible. And then you have Kubrick who says, "Okay, it's going to be good, but it's not going to be natural. It's going to be." very very intentional every everything in a kubrick film is intentional like down to the small details of like a book someone is reading uh, like a magazine someone is reading like there are just so many little things and inferences you can take from what's going on in a kubrick film like every, everything is intentional yeah and one thing that you mentioned earlier that i thought was really interesting was the use of models and how well done the models are like I outer space mm-hmm. again and that became like a really big part of sci-fi after the second world war and you know rockets became a thing space travel became something that was like on the mind of people they were so thorough with how spaceflight would actually work this early on this is before the moon landing correct and so, it's and it. It gets a lot right. It absolutely like, does. Things they wouldn't have found out until, you know, 20, 30 years after this movie came out. Right. Or at least it wouldn't have been common knowledge, like for the regular viewer. So they definitely did their homework in figuring out how this stuff would work. I mean, it's not like you can just pop open YouTube in 1968 <laughs> and look at an actual video of a satellite or a space shuttle or like a 3d rendering of how this actually works. What aerospace designers, use? you don't have all those resources, right? It is just, it is just fantastic. And we'll get into it as we talk about things that happen in the movie. It's just, it's insane how much he got right. And you know, for not knowing. And I think that's another thing people don't understand when they watch this movie is remember this movie came out in 1968. Mm -hmm. The, the, like, none of this shit existed. He he and Michael C. Clark came up with this all on their own. Yes, yeah, and it paid off, honestly. I mean, it was really authentic. It, I say authentic again. What is it? Is it intentional or is it organic? Uh, intentional. It's intentionally authentic and very true to spec. And I appreciate that as someone who tends to be a detail-oriented person. And I think that that was also something that really hit critics kind of hard was that i we'll go ahead and move into how you know the critical reception of the film but like it polarized like some people loved it they thought that it was an absolute masterpiece they thought that the way that it looked was so beautiful and the way it was written was so well done and it all just came together in the total package and some people just thought it was like you're paying attention to all the wrong thing, and what they mean by that, I'm not sure. I I don't know. Apparently, there is some guy in the San Francisco you know debut that got up and ran through the movie screen, screaming, "It's God!" I I think given like 1968 San Francisco, there's probably a little bit more at play than just him liking the movie, <laughs> but uh, but you can see how, like this was really important to people, love it or hate it, it was really important to people, and uh, the modern take on it is not as polarized. People generally agree that this is, like, a great movie. I mean, IMDb, 8.3 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, 93%. Like, bad movies don't do consistently well over time. Right, and if this movie were to fall off the wagon at any given time, it would... You you know, that score would go down, but it's still, people still review this movie and still give it like, you know, good reviews. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Roger Ebert also had a lot to say about it. His was very favorable though. And he tends to be pretty honest in my experience. I honestly didn't even know really what Roger Ebert did until I started doing this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but, but he did have a lot to say about this movie but uh, we probably shouldn't belabor it too much just to, i mean if you want to know go read it he thought it was good cool Let's right because there's so much to touch yeah alrighty and uh, as we said the synopsis for this film is uh suspended we uh there is no point in talking about the plot of this movie because it's kind of not important yeah uh describing it would be useless frankly because there is so much in seeing it versus just hearing it that if we just told you what happened you'd be like oh that was really straightforward why did you even bother it's um not to uh not to lean too far into pretension but it's kind of like a ballet like ballet you have to see you can't just read a synopsis of a ballet because guess what it's boring as shit Right. Same thing with music. You know, you can't just listen to, like, a critical breakdown of a performance. Like, it'll be like, okay, that sounds really cool, but, like, that doesn't do anything for me. Right. And it's, you know, certain pieces of art demand to be seen or heard. And this is one of them. Right. So let's talk about some scenes from the ground up. Uh, The Dawn of Man section is the thing that the film opens on. First off, there's, like, two and a half minutes of atonal orchestral music playing on a black screen Mm -hmm. that is a little avant-garde it's um i've always been curious as to what that means i i guess it's sort of the overture for what you're about to feel what you're about to experience and it i don't know like i guess i wouldn't do that because honestly What it reminded me of was, I thought I was gonna hear speed. I am speed, like from fucking cars, like that. Like that's what it felt like to me. Like upon this viewing, I I kind of think that it could have done without the um the overture, as you were. Let's see. Now i just got this thing conflated in my head where there's like cars and they're racing, and there's a bunch of monkeys, and there's the speed racer guy, and there's like all this stuff going on that didn't actually happen in the movie. <laughs> It's exactly. But I guess I guess that that's part of the beauty of it is it leaves it open like oh man what's gonna happen? Yeah, and frankly, it did the job. I mean, as far as being artistic goes, this was a good move for me. I appreciated that. There's probably a lot of people out there who are just like scroll, 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 scroll. When does the movie start? What are they doing? What is this? Is it broken? <laughs> Because That's what we do today. I, I, I don't know. I guess people are just really impatient. So it opens up and it's the Donna Man. Okay, no surprise. They're in the Serengeti. Like, I guess, like some Italians were just like looking out at the African plains and went, like, It looks like a pasta. It's a Serengeti. And just like all this stuff just like popping up out of the ground. And they're just like, yes, yeah. it's a pasta. It's not Ethiopia. It's in my country now. They didn't like that very much. <laughs> so the movie opens on a group of uh, pre men. It's kind of in between apes and men. Mm-hmm. And they're, uh, you know, hunting, gathering. And all of a sudden, this uh, monolith is, is what a, they call it shows up. Is that a jewel Isig? Is it a jewel? <laughs> yes, the, the giant jewel from the sky comes down. God has spoken, jewel for all. Um, right. This is like, this was ultimately the beginning and the end of man was the discovery of jewel. <laughs> Jesus right Anyway, so they look... It's this big, black, rectangular object, and it, it is ominous. So we're just gonna call it the Jewel from here on in. We're just gonna call it the Jewel? Okay. The Jewel. Because that's, that's what it is. <laughs> it's a big Jewel.
1: It's a big um, Jewel.
0: The, 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 the ape men start hitting it, and then they start listening to Morrissey, and all was good. But, you know, and it's... I like how... The monolith, or the jewel. Any the jewel. <laughs> anytime it's on screen, it's in the middle of the screen. It and, is. You know, it's, it's, I believe that's to symbolize, like, you know, it's the elephant in the room. It's existence. It's evolution. What the fuck is it? None of us understand it. We're never going to understand it fully. And it's just staring at you in the face. Definitely. Uh, after doing a little bit of digging, and this will be more evident as the film goes on, um, I, I think it has something to do with the implication of extraterrestrial life and that things that we do were ultimately set in motion by extraterrestrials, but it wasn't necessarily done for the interest of extraterrestrials. Like, I don't really know. There's not an awful lot of explanation there, but I mean, when you think about it and you break it down a little bit and you think like, okay, so it starts on the planet and they find a species that could potentially become intelligent life. And so they, I guess, bestow upon them, like, uh, the interest in using tools or, you know, Whatever it is that's going to propel them into the next phase of existence as an intelligent life form, Um, and then they put another one on the moon, because that's the next part where we go to is the moon, and then they find the one on the moon, and it sends out some kind of signal, some kind of uh, alert, and then it points them in a certain direction, they go to Jupiter, and there it is again. And then we'll hit on those points when they get there, but it seems almost to be like stepping stones into the final evolutionary form of man. And that is what I picked up out of this whole movie. So we'll right. break that down as we go, because I don't mean to jump the gun here, but if you don't get it out at one time, it just kind of doesn't get there. Right. It's This is not a movie, when you're discussing it, where you can just go scene by scene. It's, it's truly like a, there are through lines in the film especially here like with the scene where the apes take the bone that they've discovered how they use as a tool and they start using it as a weapon and after they successfully fend off like the enemy group they throw the weapon in the air and it like Cut shots over to a, like a satellite. That is called a uh, match on action because the satellite is moving and so is the bone. So when you see the bone moving and the satellite takes its place in the shot, that's called a match on action. I see. And this is kind of iconic from this film, right? Correct. The, the, this has been parodied like all over the place. Like I know the Simpsons have done it. I know everybody's done it. Like th- this is a this is a scene that gets parodied. Yeah. I love and- I was going to say, this movie is just full of stuff that gets parodied a lot, and I guess that's kind of imitation being the most sincere form of flattery, and I I, I don't know, nothing quite gets to the way that this did it, but that's just kind of the case with anything, I guess. Right, right, right. So So, anyway, we go to the satellite, and uh, we close up on a Pan Am space flight. Mmm. And this is the part of the movie that I just find so freaking interesting. He... Because he got so much about modern plane travel right. Yeah. Like, it, it's honestly kind of insane. It other, is. other than the fact that uh, Pan Am is no longer a, a flight service. Yeah, but if you look at the instrument panels inside of the cockpit of the spacecraft, I guess you call it a spacecraft, a shuttle, uh, it, it, they're IBM. Like, they're branded IBM products. And IBM is still around. IBM is doing well. Oh, yeah. I, IBM still going strong. Kubrick, you got that right. He also, did. the uh, the TV screens in the back of the headrests, like, that was not a thing nope. in 1968. Why he would have thought that that would have been a thing or how he knew that was going to be a thing, anyone's guess? It's kind of spooky. And as we go on, we'll see that it's not just the physical things, but the concepts that also have projected themselves. Uh, like you said, like, got it spot on. And these are the, the smaller things and they, they just, they snowball to where more and more and more stuff. It's self-fulfilling and it's weird. It's spooky a little bit. I mean, one thing that I found really interesting about this scene in particular was this is where the first dialogue takes place. And it's 25 minutes and 43 seconds into the movie. Right. Like there's no dialogue is used so sparsely in this movie and you get the you get the feeling that it kind of doesn't matter. It really doesn't. That's one thing, like, again, with the polarized critical response was that a lot of people felt like they sacrificed character development for these, like, detail-oriented sci-fi, like, pornography shots. Yeah, it's, I mean, and I guess in a way it is kind of, like, it's cinematography pornography. Yeah, it is. And it's it does more for the story than the dialogue ever could, in my opinion, and because I think there's a lot that happens that's not important. With dialogue like with certain movies of course it is but like with a movie like this you can set it up that way and it's not going to influence the value of the film artistically i don't think i don't either but anyway uh they also he also somehow predicted that star wars was going to steal this hanger shot oh that yeah happens in here like it looks straight like You can tell that they straight up stole this. Now, when you say the hangar shot, you're talking about, like, the Star Wars quote-unquote theft is the Millennium Falcon pulling into the Death Star shot? Yes. Okay, yeah, I I see what you mean. Because there's a few, and sometimes they get jumbled up in my head a little bit, because, I mean, it's space, so... (laughs) But also, while we're talking about space, um, and this is where I kind of want you to give some of your expertise... Sure. Um, so when they're trying to land in the hangar, how the fuck do you land on this thing? Like it, the the thing is spinning, like the little space huddle that they're going on. Mm-hmm. It's like spinning around pretty fucking fast. Like, yeah. So so like how how do you land in it? Is it kind of like a like a chance game where you're where you just kind of go for it? Well, since it's science fiction, I guess there's a few things that you could use to achieve this. Uh, if it were to be as realistic as possible then you're going to have like a complex system of landing instruments that are going to like move the shuttle around to where it can just slide right into place. Because the thing about space travel is that it's perpetual motion. There is no air. There is nothing around you to put drag on you in space. You're just going. So right. you can change your trajectory with just minor, minor adjustments. You can have like a small thing that just shoots a little bit of gas here, shoots a little bit of fire here, and it'll just adjust it into the space it needs to be in. And when with constant tweaks, you can go in a direction uninhibited. So you could just go right in. If you had like a computer system that was like talking to the landing space, which is how a lot of aircraft work today, actually uh, like with your um, like tack end systems and stuff like that, that you see in military aircraft where they can just tell what shit is on the ground just by receiving information from it. Like it's like right. it's passive at that point. So you can get like landing information and the way that you're supposed to like approach and all that stuff. So yeah, this is realistic, I think. This is another one of those things where they really hit the nail on the head. If you want to go the Star Wars route, it's a tractor beam. So right. it just lassos you in space and pulls you into the hole. Which, no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's a stretch. The, the only other thing I was thinking was, like, okay, so does the space station have, like, some sort of gravitational pull? So, like, when you're trying to land in it, you're actually orbiting it? Like, that was the only thing that, like, my mind could pull around and be like, so how the fuck did you get in this thing? Yeah, uh, in the case of Star Wars, the Death Star could have its own gravity just because it's so big and it has, I guess, like a big reactor core in the center. I don't know. I'm going with tractor beams on this one, too. But uh, as far as like, you know, just docking in the I guess it's a space hub. I I, I don't really know. But like, you could just do that with like a computer system that's one's talking to the other and giving minor adjustments. And it's basically telling each other, I'm coming at this direction this fast. And the other one's like, I'm moving this direction this fast. Where can we meet in the middle? And then it'll make adjustments to make sure they meet in the middle. Yikes. Okay. Because that's basically how planes work now. It, It will just like, let's be real. Like nowadays, planes basically land themselves and that's what they're doing. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, having pilots in this day and age is mostly a formality in case something goes wrong. Oh, good. I'm glad that uh, I'm entrusting my life to a computer system, uh, which we will also get to here in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> another thing that happens in this movie is, uh, I guess this is not a new concept by the time this movie came out, but a video call. Oh, yeah. Like, that, that looks... Pretty spot on to what it would look like today. Yeah, and I mean, uh, other than it costed him a dollar and fifty-seven cents, yeah, it would definitely not be that cheap today. Although I will say, with the way satellite technology is going today, if you wanted to FaceTime someone at the International Space Station, I mean, it really wouldn't be that much more expensive, right? Like, do you do you have to use like roaming to call that? Do you have to um, do you have to get a special package to call people that are on the moon? I mean, if so, they're going to charge you $20 a month for it at least. Oh, I mean, $20 a month to talk to someone that, like, you may very well never see again. Like, if we eventually start sending people to, like, Mars or a planet further than that, like, it's going to take, like a good chunk of your lifetime just to get there like let alone come back yeah i think the going great right now is about five years for an um, object to reach mars from earth so like signals i think take a couple of minutes to get back and forth and uh, honestly with the way that my phone works sometimes uh that doesn't seem outside of their own possibility yeah exactly so i i don't know man like i'd pay twenty dollars to talk to my mom if she decided to move to mars Yeah, no, I would too. And I mean, in 1968, like a dollar seventy or whatever is like eh, eh, that's not that far off. I guess that's yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's probably what a take of what a gallon of gas costed then. What 170? Yeah, because right there in the early 70s to mid 70s, I was like, when the gas crisis was happening, like it was like skyrocketing. It was like not quite where we're at today.
1: But oh it's yeah, probably
0: around like a dollar fifty, dollar seventy. Dude, uh, yeah, but I mean that's just the thing. That was like with the inflation and everything. You remember back in like two thousand like eleven, two thousand ten, when gas was like five dollars a gallon, and we lived in Georgia. Dude, do you remember that summer where it was like you better learn how to ride a bike or you better do nothing? Yeah, because there was no family vacation. There was no going anywhere extra for any reason. It's just too expensive, man. It's like living in LA any given day of the week. Dude, how much is gas out there? Uh, I saw a Snapchat from a friend recently where it was 5:35. Fuck that. That's for regular. That's not for premium. That's regular unleaded guests. Well, do you have a car that would take premium? Uh, I don't, but I know a lot of people who do. You know mini Coopers take premium? I did know that. Uh, I have a Kia Soul and it technically can take premium. I remember uh, there was a gas shortage in Georgia about two or three years ago, and I had to get premium. And like, it was fine. I think I think my take of gas lasted a little longer. Huh? It wasn't well, it wasn't you know. worth the extra money, but like it it ran it it did it did its thing. Right. I mean, it's not like you were trying to drive to the moon like they were. No, it's not like I was trying to drive to the moon. Which would that use gas? I don't I don't fucking know because once it's in space, does it need? Fuel? Does it need gas? I mean, it would need the tiny little burst to make sure it doesn't hit the side of the docking station. That is true. We have to move on. We really do. (laughs) I'm nerding out again on all the little technical things. All right. So once we once they get to the moon, there the monolith shows up again. The the giant jewel from the sky. The jewel. And and they they trace its signal to Jupiter. Of all fucking places, you know, Jupiter, pretty far out there. No, what I thought was really interesting was that the guy that we're talking about now, that's Dr. Hayward Floyd. So he is not a character that comes any further into the movie with us. He is a little bit of a one-off. He's kind of an act one guy, I guess you could say. And um, what he's talking about is like a cover-up because they've kind of figured out what the monolith, what the jewel is there for. But they can't release that information yet. They've been, again, talking about extraterrestrial life. And this is one of the few times in the movie where they really come out and just say it, you know, where they said, okay, well, it's not natural. The way that the, like, magnetic field works and the way that it was buried in the earth and, like, the precise angle that it's put at. Like, there's no way that this was an accident. Someone put this here four million years ago, and it sure as hell wasn't us. Yep. And now we got to find out where it's coming from and why it's happening. Yeah, and that's what they do. I, I found it really interesting that there was still, like, a slight Cold War sentiment going on, where in the, like, the space hub on his way to the moon, uh, Dr. Hayward uh, Floyd, yeah, <laughs> Dr. Floyd, um, he is talking to some Russians, I believe, Right, right. And they are applying him. They're trying to get him to drink. They're trying to get him to talk. They're trying to get them or get him to spill the beans on what's going on in the moon. And he realizes what they're doing. He says, "I'm really not at liberty to talk about it. I can't say anything about it. It's a cover up. It's a government cover up to hide aliens. I mean, what's new? But like, just that's like just cover up it, the moon landing. Uh, yeah, there we go. There's some controversy. We have got a lot of hot takes coming out of for your information. I don't actually believe that shit, man. B- I, but but, but, but some people do believe that. Uh, this movie was the cover-up for the cover-up. Huh, funny. Like, they, they filmed the actual moon shit on the same set, but then made this movie to cover up the re- like, the cover-up that they filmed that shit in the same place. Interesting. All right, it's, well, you yeah. know. It's real stupid. It's hey real stupid. I'm willing to entertain anything now, uh, because now there's Hal. Now there's Hal. Yeah. Uh, so- we we, we jump forward 18 months, and, uh, we're on this expedition to yes. Jupiter. There's uh, three or four guys in a cryo chamber, you know, until they get there. And there's uh, three other guys that are running the ship on this mission to Jupiter to figure out what the fuck the monolith is. Yeah, three including Hal. Including Hal. Yeah, and, so we, uh, we have uh, Dr. David Bowman, uh, Dr. Frank Poole, and Hal. And... Hal is uh, interesting. G- yeah. Giv- given uh how much we've let AI into our life, even though this movie exists. Yeah, you think it would have been a cautionary tale, but it really wasn't. And it, it also has a lot of implications for like the further, deeper meaning of the film. But again, uh, we'll we'll graze on that toward the end. You know what I do have for you, Zach? What's that? This is as good a time as any to talk about it. I made a cocktail, as always. Surprise! It's coming in the middle of the episode this time. Uh oh. So this cocktail is called how, 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 and that's the recipe. There's three things in it. Hennessy, applejack, and lemon. Ooh. Yeah. So this one's really easy. It's not, you know, super complex. Those are the only ingredients you need except for your cocktail shaker, your ice, all that stuff. Okay. So basically you just take a cocktail shaker, you put some ice in there, like always. And then you're going to take one and a half ounces of Hennessy. Really any cognac will do, but I mean, why not Hennessy? And so you put your one and a half ounce of Tennessee in there. Applejack—it's apple-flavored brandy. So again, keep them with the brandy theme. This is like a brandy cocktail. Uh, one ounce of applejack, and you're gonna put that into the shaker. And then you got one and a half ounces of lemon juice. You're gonna add to the shaker. Shake it up, shake it real good, and. Strain it into a cordial glass. So this can be any kind of small glass, usually under five ounces or so. Uh, I use the little brandy snifter that I usually like to have whiskey in. You know, it's really nice. It's kind of, I guess, like a little good presentation on it. I mean, if you don't like pulp, I would recommend double straining. But if you don't mind it, just strain it right in there from the... The cocktail shake. Yeah. So it's nice and it's sweet, sour. It's got some little complex flavors going on, kind of the woodiness from the cognac. And then, you know, you got your lemon on the other side. It balances out real nice. I liked it a lot. Not like Hal. <laughs> no, not like how. But it'll kill you eventually. (laughs) If you too want to know what existentialism feels like, drink this drink. Yeah, there you go. So like you said before, Hal is in fact terrifying. Um, But it doesn't come off that way at first. You know, for someone who was living in the time and watching the movie, this probably was very exciting at first to be like, well, they have a computer that, like, talks like a person, it thinks like a person. Like, it's not a totally foreign concept at this point, but it's not something that you encountered in day-to-day life. I mean, it was super fresh to have grocery store doors that opened up on command. Right. And so how is a stand-in for, you know, intelligence, right? So, like, how far will we allow technology to do things for us? Like, and what do they expect in return? Yeah, like, I would what, say so. what is, what is the consequence for invention and and like you know what is what is the consequence for evolution and it's how or i mean you could even take a look at it and be like well this is not what happened with us this was inorganic this was forced this was fabricated so you're going to have some quote-unquote glitches in the matrix that didn't occur with like human biology because there were checks and balances there to like well this weird thing happened That line doesn't survive. This weird thing happened? That makes this line perfect, so that's the one that's going to survive. Doesn't happen with computers. They just kind of do what we tell them to. Right. Or if we give them the ability to think on their own, like, you know, how are they going to act? Right. Because technically, a computer is going to be, intelligence-wise, more perfect than a person. It can make more calculated judgments than humans can, because computers... I mean, I guess Hal does have emotions because he does get a little pissy towards the middle of this segment. But, you know, when you take the emotion out of decisions, I mean, people die usually. No, absolutely. And that's 100% what happened here. I mean, as far as I understood from watching the film, it wasn't necessarily that there was a problem with Hal that made him do this, but that there was a problem that happened that, that Hal couldn't comprehend. Like, Hal couldn't understand how he made a mistake. Or because he was made to be human. He was made to think like a human, which inevitably means that not only was he made by humans, he was made to be just like a human. The possibility for fallibility is real, but when you tell a computer that it's a computer, it's not going to be able to understand how it could possibly make a mistake. So when Hal made a mistake in that one like radio or satellite component... It's like, oh, this thing's bad, we need to pull it out, we need to replace it, it's got X amount of hours before it's going to be totally useless, but it's fine? Well, that was a mistake. The other computer didn't make this mistake, this was a one-off. You did this thing wrong, but it doesn't understand fallibility, it can't fathom it. Right, and so because of that, it decides that humans are the problem, uh, just like all bad robots in movies do. Of course, and this is kind of a refined edition of that, I think, because... um, the two characters, Frank and Dave, they go into the pod away from Hal, can't see him, or they can't hear him, but Hal can see through the glass and they'll read their lips. And that's what ends up dooming them in a sense. But from Hal's perspective, it's a mission capability thing because Hal's only reason for existing on this mission is to ensure that the mission is carried out. And when the humans start talking about, disabling hal hal is under the impression that he is ultimately the backbone of the mission that if hal is not able to be used they're going to have a much 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 lower chance of success so in his mind still thinking perfectly because he's 99.9999999 percent perfect with his thoughts he thinks that like well this is now a threat i need to eliminate the threat to ensure mission success correct and logically speaking that is correct Mm -hmm. however Hal doesn't understand mortality no not really or if he does doesn't really care yeah exactly because what does he care right if if he does understand mortality then it's these people are going to die why should i care and honestly um and i was i can't remember who said this so i can't credit it but you know it's also kind of a stand-in for you know god like if you think about it like if God can, you know, make all these decisions and God knows everything. Then why the fuck would he care about all these people? Like, of course, that's why people die because why does it matter? I suppose you know, so. In I grand. Independent- Depends on the take on God. And of course, we when we get to the end, we'll have a free for all on this one. But it's interesting that you should bring it up because in this particular case, I mean, it's almost a duality like man created machine, machine killed man, man killed machine, man is now alone. Right. So in a sense, there's something biblical about that too where at the end of it all, I mean, uh, we'll say biblical because we're talking about God. And I mean, naturally that's going to be a part of the conversation. Uh, Not that that's the only way to view God or anything, but that when you take that idea and you have a God that created something and there was an interaction back and forth between it, not necessarily favorable, something was done wrong. And then there was a reaction and then there was a counter reaction at the end of the day. We're not going to be alive, right. <laughs> you know? It's if, if you believe everything that's in the Bible, it's like, well, the people that believe God are going to die, but they're going to go up and be with God, and everybody else is going to be separate from God, but no one's going to be living on Earth anymore, or at least not the way that we know it now. Right, and so that conversation aside, um, I, I've always found the scene at the end of this segment very interesting, where he goes inside of Hal to disable him. Mm. And he takes out, like, his hard drives and, like, his memory. So it's almost as if, like, he's lobotomizing Hal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an apt comparison. And, like, you know, you, you can see Bowman, he he feels kind of bad about it, almost. Oh, of like, course. Because I mean, Hal's, like, pretty much begging him not to do it. Right. And on the one hand, it's like, Hal's not a real person. Hal is a program. Hal, it, like, I could turn him back on tomorrow, and if I do the right thing... He will have zero memory of it, but he knows inside that that's not the right thing to do. This is juxtaposed from what Hal was doing, where Hal really just shut humans off and didn't really think anything about it. There's like mission effectiveness, got to disable the humans, humans disabled. Well, Hal can be turned back on. The humans can't just be turned back on. Right. But he didn't have the foresight to understand that, nor did he care. But even David, Dr. Bowman cares that he's doing this to Hal, even though Hal doesn't have feelings right and it's just like you know how far are we willing to go with technology how far are we willing to like cohabitate with technology how long are we going to stand while giant food stores have those stupid fucking marty robots in them oh man here we go with the automation thing oh my god dude i fucking hate marty i hate him so much I I know that I'm not ready for for integrated life with robots because he, he gets in my way, he's an asshole, like, anytime you bump into him, he starts, like, blinking and making noises like he did something wrong. Uh, okay, I, I, I hate Marty. I so, hate him so much. For people that don't live in the Northeastern Corridor, can you please inform us what Marty is? Like, I know what that is, but not because I've seen it. Marty is, like, a automated um, system that runs through the grocery store. Uh, he doesn't clean. He doesn't do anything. I think his main purpose is to, like, keep stock and to, like, learn the layout of the grocery store because he technically doesn't really do anything right now. Hmm. So, but what I've been told is that eventually Marty will be able to go through the grocery store, scan every barcode down an aisle, and tell the store what they need to reorder, and then eventually, once they trust Marty... Marty will just go ahead and reorder everything for them therefore they will the managers will no longer have to do it. So it's not really taking any like jobs away from like you know lower um people in the grocery store, you know, Mecca or whatever you call it. And in the food chain of the grocery store, it will not take away lower jobs like a like the self-scan checkouts did. Right. This is more of a um convenience thing and an mm-hmm. inventory thing. So that is eventually what Marty will do. And they said they're they're even working on having Marty being able to put stock away. That would be taking jobs. However, you know I mean, eh, I guess. Alright. I just a- I don't like it. You you live in Pennsylvania. Right. That's the Northeastern Corridor. Correct. Unions have a pretty strong hold on industry in the Northeast Corridor still, right? Correct. Like, I know the days of Bruce Springsteen are kind of gone, but, like, still, right? Like, that's a thing. Unions are still a pretty big thing up here. uh, The Teamsters being the biggest one. Right. So when I worked for a grocery store, like, less than three months, like, it was a real short stint. They were highly unionized. Very, very unionized. and. I don't see that allowing them to do this robotic automation grocery store thing. Right. And I think it's purely because it's doing the job that a manager would do so that the manager can then be on the floor helping more. I, I see. Guess. That or it's really just there to just... I personally think it's a security system. Like, I think they're lying to me. So do you think there's like a taser in that thing and like they have to constantly correct it to make sure it's not going after people for like profiling reasons? Yeah. <laughs> No, no! For the last time, you can't just tase people, Marty. Must stop theft at all costs. See, uh, Must destroy humanity. We were talking about 2001: A Space Odyssey, and now we're talking about RoboCop. <laughs> <laughs> hand in hand, man. Hand in hand. One is yeah. <laughs> so this is like if uh, RoboCop was more like Paul Blart: Mall Cop. This is. We are now getting into uh, movie matchup territory that I don't feel comfortable in. <laughs> okay let's let's move on okay so uh dr bowman deactivates hal right lobotomizes him and uh then uh we get to jupiter yes this and, is where uh, the things, things get more stupider they, yeah they get wild so uh he was pretty close when he deactivated hal but he was able to get the ship there on his own or mostly on his own i guess um and when he gets there the monolith is there the jewel he finds the jewel, the jewel. You know, he gets a hit on the jewel, bro. The jewel's not out of juice, bro. (laughs) Do you still let me get one more hit, bro? I'm I'm trying to understand life and God. Let me get one more hit, bro. So so, uh, the monolith is pointing in a direction where there are celestial bodies aligning. So the solar system is aligning. This is something we've seen a couple times earlier in more abstract shots in the film. Mm -hmm, And now it's the full shot. Yeah, now we know why. So, it's pointing in the direction, the plants are aligning in this direction, and he reaches it, and this is the trigger. This is what propels him forward into, what is it? Um, I, there's several different interpretations of what happens here. Um, this sequence is called the Stargate sequence. Mm. And, um, if you're, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about, it's like we're all the crazy colors and shapes are coming through and it looks like you're like going through like time and space which i guess is what he's doing um really quick just in case you were wondering and I promise I will make this brief but uh this effect is actually made through a process called a slit scan huh which is a little piece of film that goes between the subject and the camera it has a slit in it so that you can uh, make all kinds of crazy colors and uh, shapes out of what you're shooting and for this movie they did that they shot uh several valleys and several deserts from uh above like a like an above pov and then they sped it up and that's what you're looking at like all the crazy colors are from the slit screen like they can make the slit screen different colors and like as you move it back and forth it creates like this weird trippy shit that you're seeing Hmm. so anyway just really quick just in case you were wondering how in the fuck did they do that uh, back so yeah. then because it's not—it's not CGI. It's all like everything in this movie is a practical effect. See, I always thought that slit scan was just where you put your ass crack on the copy machine. Um, I mean, I guess you could call it a slit scan. I mean, I, I, yeah, <laughs> you broke my brain on that one. All right, yeah. So clearly, uh, David, we're just gonna call him David now because titles don't really matter when you're that thing that's traveling through space at ludicrous speed they've gone flat i guess (laughs) jump to ludicrous speed um i'm glad you've seen that movie i I have seen that movie i think we saw that together in like the seventh grade i think that i don't remember i just like funny stuff spaceballs if you're lost we're talking about spaceballs in the middle of 2001 a space odyssey Uh, right Uh, kubrick is rolling over in his grave and mel brooks uh just got a smile on his face because he's See, he's alive still i'm pretty sure he is and i was gonna say uh, smile on his face also like a seventh dui and then i realized that that's mel gibson not mel brooks <laughs> oh yeah no mel brooks is the jew that uh is proud of being a jew instead of mel gibson um, yeah that's kind of uh yeah, that that's touchy that that is touchy anyway um so all this trippy shit happens um uh, it's really cool it's visually striking um once again atonal music happening so it's kind of like you're on the edge of your seat like oh man what's about to happen yeah it's chaotic it's chaotic it, it's chaotic in the purest sense and it happens for about a good seven minutes yeah no it's really really long and it it's not that it belabors the point because i felt like there were very few points in this movie that were belabored even though some of the shots take a really long time that it, it's almost Almost, uh, especially like not to go back in the story, but the scene where he's trying to grab the other doctor from space. Yeah. And he's trying to go into the emergency airlock that Hal's locked him out of. Like, that scene is almost anxiety-inducing with how long it takes. It is. And that I guess that's suspense, right? Because this is not really conventional suspense like we would see in maybe some horror movies. This is, like, I don't even know how to describe this. This is, like, another level of suspense to me. Right. It's, you already don't really know what's going on. So the fact that there's, like, danger involved in the unknown, like, that's that's a whole other level of suspense. It's not like, all right, well, I'm either going to live through this or I'm going to die. It's truly, like, I truly don't know what's about to happen here. Right. Um, Are you of the mind that this transition that David goes through is literal or spiritual or psychological? Well, it depends on um, how you view what happens next. Right, but what what do you think about it? I think that... So... I go in different camps with this ending because every time I watch it, I get something different out of it. Yeah. Like, um, you could interpret this as a trip quote unquote. And like, he's going, he's seeing what whoever put the model up there, whether it's a alien or divine intervention, Uh uh-huh. huh. He, he's seeing what they want him to see in yes. order to, Become more evolutionized. Yes. Or it's he is traveling between dimensions, which is kind of what I get most of the time. It feels as if he's going, especially because of the scene that follows directly after this, it feels like he's traveling through a different dimension. But I see that. I, I mean, well, here's a follow up question for you is uh, considering that uh, we'll go ahead and say that it is extraterrestrial life. And considering that, do you think that in this universe or really in any understanding of extraterrestrial life, that it is like a, like a a literal nuts and bolts extraterrestrial thing, or it's like an interdimensional traveler extraterrestrial thing. Like, so you mean either like it's a, um, like it's an actual, we'll say alien, like it's an actual alien controlling what he's seeing, or if it's just truly powers within extraterrestrial life that are causing this to happen. I was thinking more along the lines of the extraterrestrial visitors are either of our dimensional plane and simply travel to our solar system, Or they exist in another dimension and they jump through somehow and then they go back to where they came from that's a, another dimension rather than traveling across literal space. Um, And I don't mean this just to say you know yes to your question but like I, I truly believe it could be either because I do believe in multiple dimensions like and I, not in the traditional like you know like a Rick and Morty sense like a dimension. Right. Like where there's like every choice causes a different plane of existence. I don't I don't think that technically exists i think that exists in your mind but not literally however there is this weird thing where uh, we're actually always two seconds in the past like your your brain can't comprehend how fast life actually happens i definitely see that and i don't know if that's because i have like problems or because i am just like this but like uh, my wife constantly is like getting on me because i'll like hit my hand on something real hard and i'll immediately say like oh just like like freak out for a second and then it'd be like fine and be like you're so dramatic why did you do that you knew it didn't hurt and i was like well like for the first two seconds i couldn't really gauge how much it was gonna hurt me <laughs> I, I feel that dude i feel that it's like when i'm like going for a jog and i like roll my ankle off the side of the car like this could hurt a lot or this could not hurt at all and i'm not sure which one it is yet so it's so, and I, I don't mean to insult you but it's almost infantile in a way It is, but at the same time, you're waiting for the experience to come. You're 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 acting emotionally first and then mentally later. Right, and I think it's maybe where as like a child would do that. It's like a an unknown and not being sure what's going to happen. Whereas for me, it's like a I already know how this can go, and I'm just getting ready for the worst. It's just like everything else in life. Expect nothing, and you will never be disappointed. Right, and you used to say that to me when we were younger, and I was like, Wow, what a dark way to go about life and like i applied that to my life and it is so much better like i expect so little from the universe now that when anything happens it's great yeah and i mean in this case what the universe has done for you is slingshotted you across dimensions and or space into a vaporwave album cover <laughs> it, it is some sort of extra dimensional plane of existence that he's in here and he this is i'm just gonna jump through this scene because it it, like what you see almost doesn't matter it's the concept that's at work here it is so pretty much he walks in he sees an older version of himself eating dinner that older version of himself turns around and now the bowman that we were looking through is now middle-aged and he is now looking at the oldest version of himself in a bed, uh, grabbing towards the monolith. And yes. and I guess th- this is a representation of life and death. Like, this is, this is the uh, plane of existence of life and death. Yes, I think that in the process of going from point A to point B, where he started off as a scientist on Earth, and then he traveled through space, and he had a lot of things happen to him between there and there and there on the journey. And he reaches this place, he transcends dimensions he transcends space something like that happens he ends up in a place where he is now learning to transcend time because time doesn't matter in the the baroque room as people often call it so it just kind of doesn't happen in a linear sense anymore like it's choppy you know what i mean and coming in terms of that is hard but it happens really fast and then when he expires the, the monolith is there the jewel is there to give him one last fucking hit. Just bro, I'm about to die, bro. Just one more hit, bro. Just, I want one giant novelty jewel e cig that's like nine feet tall <laughs> that I have to stand on like a small ladder to take a hit out of. Like, I, I feel like you'd have to press a button and the smoke would just. like, destroy your face. Like, I I can't imagine you being able to put your mouth around that enough to get enough suction to get the vapor out. The the little, like, hole on the mouth nozzle would literally be, like, the size of a didgeridoo. Correct. So, like, there's no way you're getting your mouth up. Uh, No, you'd have to put your mouth inside of it. Oh, so, like, you're putting your head inside of it and then pushing some sort of mechanism that causes the uh, the vapor to happen. This is stupid. Um, What you're describing is a gas mask jewel. I, I hate... I hate that I've put that into existence. It's going to happen now. You're going to see someone at some sort of EDM concert with, like, it's going to be, like, a mask that has, like, 14 jewels, like, attached to it, and you just watch them breathe in and just, like, the vapor comes out of their ears. I hate myself. It's happening now. Please, no one do this. Please, uh, yeah. God, God is watching. God well. is, God, or the aliens are watching. Please don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so David expires in the bed as, as his oldest self, and the monolith is there. And when the monolith looks back at him, he's no longer an old man. He is a different kind of being. He is uh, reborn as what appears to be a fetus, a newborn child. I've heard this thing called the star child before. I think that might be a term taken from the Sentinel. I, I, that or it's from the novel. I can't remember, but it's... Right, that that is the novel, The Sentinel. It, it's yeah, I I know what you. Anyway um yeah the star child and then he's looking over the earth that and that's the last shot of the movie it's very iconic and uh now all we have left to do john is a uh, what the fuck yeah so there's a lot of ways you can break this down i am of the mind of course coming from where i come from and having you know been paying attention to like more so like the musical side and like the philosophy side i am of the mind that the sentinel and by proxy 2001, a space odyssey is like, A sort of sci fi adaptation of So Spoke Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher in the 19th century. And Mm -hmm. when we listen to the music, that whole that thing, that is actually the overture for a tone poem called Also Sprock Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, that is about this. It's like an orchestral rendition of that story, which is a novel, of course, by the philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche. And basically how that works is it's about the concept of the Superman. So someone who has reached the final form of humanity, who is kind of the yin to the yang of the last man. And it's like a story following Zarathustra, who is the Superman and how he approaches humanity again after isolation for a period of time and he like he tries to explain to people why what they are doing does not work it's it's very like anti church anti religion but most importantly it's like anti um I was I'm gonna go ahead and say hedonism in a sense where it's like fulfilling your desires as an individual is meaningless because you are not being your best self. You're just like dopamine dumping yourself into an early grave instead of figuring out what you can accomplish. And that I think is an adapted concept here in that David Bowman travels through space, he overcomes the the situation with Hal, who has other implications in the story. I'm sure I just don't know all of them. And then he transcends what it means to be human by going to wherever the aliens have taken him or wherever whatever it's taken him. And that he is he dies and is reborn as the Superman. He's reborn as the final or maybe the next form of human life. Right. He he is now Mewtwo. Yeah, he is the Superman. He is Zarathustra. Yeah. And so it the the next part that this goes into is, and this is the interpretation of like what happens next. Yeah. Is is this like an apocalyptic thing? Is he going to destroy the world like Hal did? Because there's no there's no coming back from this. Mm-hmm. Like we we are now in a new set of evolution. Yeah, I think that um, this again kind of plays into the whole Zarathustra thing again, where you have like the last man. Which it's there's a lot to this, but you notice how there's not a lot of people on the space flight how it's really just him. Mm -hmm. You notice how they don't show what life is like on earth other than his daughter. Yes. So it leaves a lot open to interpretation. And if we are to believe that this is a parallel, then the last man as described in the, the book by the Nietzsche book, not the Arthur Clark book um, that humans are at a point where they're using technology for self-service. They're not becoming better. They're not evolving anymore. And again, with this whole look into the future thing, look where we are now. We are not using our abundance of technology to better ourselves as individuals. We'd just rather watch Cardi B clap her ass cheeks on Snapchat, quote unquote news. Correct. So So why shouldn't we be erased? Well, that's the question, right? Is that once humans, again, going to the philosophy side, once they experience this final form of human or there is an ascended form of humanity it's called self-deification in the book i think um religion means less and like the reason like the whole philosophy is like the reason why people do things and the common belief is that well there is a god or there's an afterlife or there's a spiritual plane and that is where the source of good or the source of purpose in the universe comes from but when you transcend that and you become intrinsically motivated to become the superman that falls apart and people also fall apart, right? So when there's no longer a reason to do good things, and people clearly are too self-serving to become the quote-unquote Superman themselves, you're right. They they become a race. They they die, right? And if you die with no purpose, then what does that mean? Right. Do you, do you become a star child? Do we all become star children when we die? Are we all God? Is that the secret? I think that is kind of where it splits off from the book and that like in the book, Zarathustra is already kind of the Superman and he's preaching like a quote unquote gospel of becoming the Superman, that self-deification process where you are intrinsically motivated, but people don't do that. And like one of the most famous things from the book is like, you could tell the last man, the self-serving man, like all these things. And you could ask him all these questions about why he doesn't do it, but he's really just kind of entertained by it. He doesn't understand that there is purpose there outside of self-serving, like hedonism. Right. And, I know this is really, like, deep end, and this is probably not what you wanted to hear this late in this podcast. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here for it, man. Let's go. So uh, that's really where it leaves off for me, and I thought that that was really, really interesting, and that opened a lot for me. I wasn't super familiar with the Zarathustra thing beforehand. I just knew that, like he's a Superman and like even like the understanding of Superman like as a superhero is kind of based on this too I mean think about it he's an alien he's one of a kind on earth he doesn't necessarily relate to people because he is kind of perfect right and you know it's you know it's kind of like an allegory for Jesus and all this other kind of thing and and that's kind of I get a very spiritual and very like religious feeling off of like this end scene like really well it's kind of like a there is a God like there is is a there is a being that can control everything that's going on just like humans invented hal and hal inadvertently created the superhuman in a sense yeah it's it's a very interesting like like relay of events even though this movie is kind of non-linear in a way right it's kind of interesting how things connect and how because this happened this happens like it's almost as if, like, the universe is planned. Like, this has always been planned. And it took a supercomputer to create a Superman. So the need to overcome the supercomputer and the oppression the supercomputer can create created the Superman that could supervert the supercomputer. Interesting take. See, in my mind, when I look at it from where I'm at, I I see, like, man created the computer, like we were talking about before, you know? It's very much a God and man-type relationship where... God created the computer or God created the man and just like man created the computer and then the computer rebelled against man and man ultimately had to put down the computer. So that is a god thing but it ultimately points to man being a god stand-in. You know what I mean? Right. So it's, you know, God does not exist. Like the the concept of God exists and that's why we feel a certain way we feel about things like coincidences in the universe. But in this movie's case it's God creates God. God destroys God. God becomes new God. So right. it's it's almost as if like the supernatural beings within the universe have to constantly fight one another, have to constantly one up each other. Where, but then there's also the aliens that are creating the monolith, mm-hmm. you know, sending their giant jewel pod out everywhere in the fucking universe. They just gotta get everybody hooked, man. They gotta get all and, the kids hooked on Mango Jewel. On Mango Jewel, man, Mango Jewel 20 2299, quick trip, sheets, anywhere go for it that was not a paid plug please don't shut us down yeah you got Um, your sheets plug in there hey man sheets is the fucking bomb anyway um it's you know and those guys are above everything so it implies that there's all there's always a bigger fish that's what i'm getting at there's always a bigger fish interesting yeah because when i think about it i I, the term like god is dead it comes from the teachings the the studies of frederick nietzsche as a philosopher And it kind of permeates all the stuff that he did, as far as I understand it. I haven't done a whole bunch of work with Nietzsche before, but like, it's man created God, you know, that's the whole idea. And that like, if you look at Hal as a sort of infallible God, well, man created God, or then God killed, or man killed God, you know, that that whole dynamic that people talk about is displayed between the people and Hal, but ultimately the self-deification that happens with transcendence and he's reborn as the star child or the space fetus or whatever is the self-deification that makes him the Superman, you know? And like that, that's, that's really like out on a limb I think from what most people were looking for in a movie like this. But I totally see how someone like Stanley Kubrick could have tackled this because he had the attention to detail to make it tasteful. Right. And that, this movie is class all the way. Like it's, it's so beautifully shot. And if you, you could almost watch this movie with no sound and still be mesmerized. Like it's, it's beautiful. Like, and that's what I love about Kubrick films is that any film could be a painting. Any film could be just a, fo- any piece of the movie could just be a photograph. Like it's, it's done that well. That's true. It's like, it's just like a rolling catalog, a rolling portfolio of pictures. Right. Right and it, i mean i guess that's technically what a film is it's but you know this was purpose built to be that it was purpose built and everything in this movie is purposeful and you know I, I think we've talked about it at ends here uh let us know what you guys think uh we'll open up a thread on the facebook page and uh let us get, let us know what you think of this movie let yeah. us know like what you feel, because I would love to have this an open discussion about this, because it is it is a movie that demands to be talked about, even years later. Absolutely, and I think, like you said in the beginning, and we talked about the whole time, like, the parallels with what we're seeing today, not just in the literal sci-fi becoming reality, you know, fiction becoming reality, art becoming life. Uh, it's more so, like, a reflection of how life is working today. Are there other movies that do this? Like, when we talk about The Last Man and the I idea that like we're kind of self-serving we have all this technology but you know what are we doing with it and that's like a lesson that you learn and you know some things like this but like what other like high concept films do we have i mean are you aware of any right now i mean again can you guys out there show us any others that we can view and review if you like listening to this i mean if you hated listening to this um give us a thumbs down uh send a picture of your what's it called a uh, slit projection in I, I can't say that out loud it's <laughs> don't photocopy your butt and put it on the page (laughs) send it to us privately and we'll pay you anyway um, that's not a guarantee that's not a guarantee for legal purposes that's not a guarantee for legal purposes that's not a guarantee guarantee. we have to bring this ship in for landing we have to go figure out what it means to be the star child um anyway so please give us a like on facebook Uh, go into the thread See what you can find, see how you feel. Let us know how you feel about the episode, how you feel about 2001 A Space Odyssey, how you feel about life in general. We're and here th- for you. And don't forget to make yourself a HAL of your very own with those three simple ingredients H A L, Hennessy, Applejack, and Lemon. Zach understands it. He only heard about it one time. Well, twice, I guess. But you know what? i If he can do it, you can do it. And, Zach, I fully expect you to make this one for yourself at home. I'm about to go make at least three, so I can just get this out of my brain so I can go to bed. Heck yeah. Purge the banks. Purge the banks. Anyway, for this week, 2001 A Space Odyssey, what a movie. Uh, John, I'm glad you enjoyed it as much as you did. I thoroughly did. All right, so for your information, uh, I'm Zach... And I'm John. Have a great week, guys. Uh, Watch a fucking movie. Watch a new movie this week. See ya.